the Korean Thrive Podcast, episode 172. How PR can help you grow a niche handmade business with Aidan McKinnon. Do you want to grow a thriving, profitable handmade business? My name's Jess Van Den, and I'm here to help you do just that. I took my own handmade business full-time in 2010, and since 2013, I've helped thousands of makers, just like you, create and grow successful handmade businesses. So, are you ready to thrive? Let's get learning. Hey there, Thriver Jess here. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's awesome to have you with me this week for an interview episode. And uh, as I uh, release this out to you in the world, I'm going to be spending my time in Hawaii uh, on Honolulu exploring the snorkeling and the hiking and the history which I'm really looking forward to because I've never been there before so uh, if you want to kind of get some sneak peeks behind the scenes of what I'm up to come and follow me on Instagram at create and thrive I'll be sharing that especially in my stories before we get started I just want to check if you have access to my handmade biz toolkit it's a resource that's full of free ebooks, downloadables, etc., that I developed to help you get started with and grow your handmade business. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there, including my 25 essential tips for handmade businesses, a free studio in the box, and downloadable printable uh, planner, whole sorts of stuff. So just head on over to createandthrive.com and click on start here to get access to the toolkit of goodness. Now today's episode, I am going to be talking to Aiden from Cutthroat Knives. It's awesome to have a guy on the show, <laughs> a maker, and uh, he, like most of us, it started as a hobby. He started, uh, kind of did a bit of a workshop on bladesmithing and fell in love with it and then spent the next six months obsessively kind of learning and trying and failing and learning and till he got to the point where he was making beautiful knives and uh, eventually decided to turn it into his business. Fast forward a few years later, he's now got uh, a couple of employees. His business is doing really, really well. And in this episode, we talk about a few things. We talk about that shift that you go through uh, when you go from just being a one-person show to actually having to have employees and how that works. We talk about how advertising hasn't really worked for him, but PR has been incredibly successful and how he's made that happen. And much more about the trials and tribulations of handmade business. I really enjoyed talking to Aiden. It's good fun. And I hope you too enjoy this episode of the show. Let's get started. Hey, Aidan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I stumbled across you and I was fascinated uh, because I don't know that I've ever come across a artisan knife maker before. Can you tell me how did you come into making handmade knives? Uh, I, I used to work in a completely different field. I was living overseas and I came back to Australia and for a while I was just doing a lot of stuff that was feeding my creativity. So I was cooking a lot. Uh, I was doing a fair amount of art. And then my parents as a gift gave me a class where I made a knife and I went out to, to the middle of nowhere uh, and made uh, a hunting knife in this guy's shed. Um, <laughs> And while I'm not really into hunting, the, the process really connected with me. And so very quickly after that, I was like, I, 
I think this brings together a whole bunch of different things that I've always been interested in. I've always been interested in food. I've always been interested in design and it allows me to combine those things into one, into, uh, yeah, into one idea. And, and I, and I, very soon after that, I actually started going, cool, I'm going to set up this business. That's, that's awesome. So you did that first knife-making workshop. Have you done any formal training or has it kind of been mostly learn-as-you-go sort of stuff? There's no real formal training uh, available in Australia. There's a, um, a blacksmithing and bladesmithing school in France that I've recently heard about. Mm-hmm. And there's stuff that's being set up in the States. Uh, but there's no kind of formal channels to do this kind of stuff. A lot of it, you just have to stand in front of a grinder or stand in front of a forge and burn things and break things and hurt yourself uh, until you make something okay. Yeah. Uh, and then hopefully you get to sell your okay to thing to people who recognise that your okay thing is okay. You know, and, and, and that's you're not even good at this point. Yeah. You know, your okay is a very strong word for what you probably are in the very beginning. I, l- I love that idea, though. It's um, it reminds me of another guest recently uh, gave the Ira Glass quote about I don't know if you're familiar with it that you just have to you know when you start out you have a really good eye but you don't have the skills yet and you just need to make and make and make until what you can make kind of matches up with what you your your aesthetic and what you want to make and i think all makers have been through that you have this dream of what this beautiful thing you want to create but you just don't have the skills yet and you just have to keep practicing and learning until you get there yeah absolutely i think i started off going i'm gonna make this beautiful knife and then i realized that it was way outside my my skill level when i first started it was so far beyond my skill level uh and and the crazy thing is, as time has gone on, my skill level has increased. My definition for what that knife is, is has also changed. Mm-hmm. So I think as time goes on, I, you know, what I, I could easily make what I originally thought of a couple of years ago. But, but now I'm like, oh, now there's all these other things that I would include that I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even known to include back then. Yeah. Um, and so it, 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 it constantly... It constantly makes the next knife the best knife you're ever going to make. Mm, I like that. Yes, absolutely. So how long ago was it that you kind of did this workshop and decided, I want to do this, I want to make knives? Uh, I've been running this full time for nearly four years and so it was just a short time before that. Um, uh, For about five to six months I just went into a workshop without the pressure of going, cool, I have to make these knives to, to sell. And I was just every single day, I was just going there and, and making knives, knowing that I wanted to be able to launch a business at one point from this. Um, and so I, you know, I was putting in 10, 11 hour days, mm-hmm. just building everything and building up my skill level. Um, yeah. So have you, have you run businesses before or was this your first business? Uh, this is my first business, and it's a huge, huge learning curve. Every, <laughs> every time you think you're okay, uh, life reminds you by kicking you in the groin in some other way yeah. that you're like, ah, oh, you, you know, you've got your head around the marketing side of things. Clearly, you're not organised enough. You're like, okay, I'm going to be more organised. And it's like, ah, oh, you dropped the ball on marketing. Uh, so it's, yeah, running a business is both the most rewarding and the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Um, 
and and now my big focus is learning how to switch off mm. at the end of the day. Um, because that's it becomes all consuming. Yes. Uh, and that's both a positive and a negative. Um, it's a positive because it allows you know it allows you to build the business in the way that it should be built. But it's negative in the sense that it has detrimental effects on every other part of your life. <laughs> Absolutely, I think I think all successful business owners go through this this sort of journey. You know, you you have something you're passionate about it, you get the idea, and then you jump into it, and it's full steam ahead, and it's upset, you know it kind of completely obsesses you every same moment you're thinking about it or working on it, and then you, for most of us, a few years down the line, we look just kind of stop and look around and go, oh, I've totally neglected every other aspect of my life, and maybe I should start thinking about that again. Yeah. <laughs> so. Looking through your website um, and all of the things that so you obviously started out making knives yourself, but these days you've got uh, other staff who make, uh, at least one other person who makes your knives. You do workshops, you do custom work as well as your stock work. So how did this all evolve? Was it Did it all kind of happen very quickly or have these been little extra bits you've added to the business as you've gone along? Certain things were conceptualised right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, knew that I wanted to do a combination of, of a core range of knives, um, which is really the entry point to handmade. Yeah. A lot of people want that connection, but but they don't they don't even know what they would want from custom or anything else. So so we've got that core range of knives for them. I always knew that I wanted to do limited editions, both as a way of collaborating with with new and interesting people, uh, and it's a little bit inspired by the. The, by the collectible sneaker market mm-hmm. where, where Nike collaborates with interesting people from, you know, a diffuse range of, of backgrounds. Uh, and then I also knew that I wanted to have that, um, that kind of top, top tier custom uh, and for that custom experience to be very special. And we're still kind of building up that custom experience. Mm-hmm. That's a, it, it was conceptualised four years ago. It's taken four years to get to a point where we're just about to launch it in beta. So we've just done alpha launch, which was very, very kind of, you uh, we were still kind of sending links to people. Beta is, we've actually produced a booklet that walks you through the steps of designing your own knife. Mm-hmm. And we kind of have sit down with you. And then the, the launch after that will be once we're in our own space, you come in, you sit down with us, you have a whiskey with us. It's very much about that experience. Mm-hmm. Of, of actually being part of that process in a very different way. Like, you know, it's not part of it in the sense that you, we're not going to bring you in and, and get you to manufacture the steel or anything, but it's, it's having, it's making sure that your fingerprint is on that blade. Yeah. And I love that you call it imprint. That's, uh, that's really nice. Um, so with the custom and the, kind of production knives that you do. Who are your customers? Who's your ideal customer and who, you know, has that changed over time or has it pretty much been the same? Yeah, I've, I've always thought of my, my customers as anybody who, who wants to enhance their cooking experience. Mm-hmm. Um, since all knives cut food, why spend, a, why spend money on one knife over any other knife? Yeah. Um, and, and I think 
I've always thought that the best knife I can make is the one that your grandfather gives you. <laughs> yes. The one that has that much emotional connection to you. Um, and so maybe that is my knife. For, you know, maybe that's my knife for people that, that going, oh, I bought this beautiful knife from a guy who makes them by hand in Coburg. Um, or, or maybe that's something else. Um, and we're never going to kind of, you know, we, do, we don't do hard sells with anybody. Mm. But, uh, I, you know, going back to kind of the question a little bit, I think we've, we've got a couple of different people. We love working with chefs. Mm. Uh, we've also got a number of collectors who anytime we'll bring out a new knife will just give us a call and say, oh, put me down for one of those. Wow, okay. Um, and that's, they're lovely because they're, you know, it, it, it's just like, cool, guaranteed when I, when I release these knives, five of them are going to sell straight away to, to those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe five others will be picked up by these guys, you know, um, which is really, really fantastic. But I, but I tell you what, I actually love my favourite customers are the ones who come to me for the first time, mm. who, who are buying their first handmade knife, who are, who, are, who are getting more into food in a way that they've never gotten into before. Um, I love cooking and always have, and I love the philosophy around what a meal is. Mm. You know, a meal is this incredible human institution that brings us together. Uh, and whatever you can do to enhance that, you know, I think is very noble. Mm. I love this idea of the larger ethos around, you know, your knife because, you know, people uh, like me, my husband's a big, a big cook. He loves cooking. I have never really gotten the cooking bug. So, if, you know, I'll just go down and buy a cheap knife and whatever. But I think he would be the sort of person who would appreciate something like a true crafts, craftsman or craftswoman, a craftsperson appreciates beautiful tools. Whereas, like, uh, I remember because I make jewellery, a few years into my career making jewellery, I saw online this amazing jeweller's saw, this beautiful handmade jeweller's saw, and it was like they they made a couple and they'd release them and they'd sell out straight away and I was just, like, hanging on waiting for that, (laughs) waiting for that next release so I could buy this damn saw because I'd fallen in love with it so much. And I feel like that's the sort of thing, you know, when you're, you really love your craft, you want the best tools uh, to make it. And I think you start recognising it in, in other areas. Um, I think much to my wife's dismay and sadness, I, I like everything I <laughs> want to buy these days is now handmade. Um, and so I'm like, oh, I bought a handmade wallet. It was $300. Um, and, and, it's, and it's only a lot of money when you can... When you compare it, 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 look, it, it's a tremendous amount of value and you've got to dismiss the money. Mm. Um, I think we've broken, we've broken the concept of value. Mm. Value used to mean a respect for the quality of the craftsmanship. You go, oh, look, that, that, that knife or that, that piece of jewellery or that table that's great value. Look at how well it's made. Mm. You, value the, you value the work of the person through a payment. N- now we go, that's cheap and I can buy a lot of them. Look at that, that, look at that value for dollar. Like it doesn't matter how well it's made. It's, you know, it's, you're like, oh, it's, it's good value for dollars because I can buy, you know, like a Kiwi knife. And, you know, this is not to 
to, to kind of poo-poo on what Kiwi knives do, but they produce $10 knives out of Thai, uh, Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're cheap. They're, the steel's really thin. Uh, they come blazing sharp, which is great, but they, you know, they're not, they're not going to last a lifetime and they're not meant to last a mm. lifetime. But in terms of, in, in, in terms of that, that concept of, of, of as cheap as possible and as much as possible, they've won that value equation mm. in knife making. But I'm trying to redefine what value. I'm trying to reclaim that term of, of value. Yeah, it really comes back to the consumer culture, doesn't it? That this idea that you always want the next best thing or you want something new rather than something old but valuable in a different way. And, you know, you said about seeing it in other markets. This is the same with me. Like uh, I bought a handmade leather bag from a, a bag maker friend a couple of years ago and it was, you know, many hundreds of dollars. And it, cause, but it's going to last me the rest of my life and I don't intend on you know, I don't collect bags. I'm not a fashion person. So for me, that's what matters is not only do I have this beautiful item uh, that was made by someone I know with, you know, care and consideration, uh, I have, the value in it is so much more than the money you spend. But also if you are kind of living in that consumer culture of like fast fashion and things like that, you're going to spend the money anyway. You're just spending it in a different way. You know, yeah. Because <laughs> if that knife, you know, a knife you make might last a lifetime, another knife might last you a year. You're going to have to keep buying that other knife every year for the rest of your life. So, yeah, you know, you're going to spend a lot, a lot of money in the long term just replacing bad quality stuff that keeps breaking or whatever. So, yeah, it is. It is definitely a different way of looking at, at value. Yeah, and it's look. You know, it, it, I'm the way I've always said, or the way I talk about this stuff is. I'm a materialist, I'm not a consumerist. Mm. So I think materials get imbued with emotions. Uh, you buy a beautiful piece of artwork, you buy a, a well-made table, all of these things you imbue with the emotions of, of things that you do with them. Um, but I'm against just buying things for the point of buying. Yeah. You know, it's, I think, buy something that, that enriches your life. Um, yeah, and I think... At the moment, I'm, I'm on a real kind of handmade bent with it all. And maybe one day it'll switch over and I'll go, no, everything should be made out from robots. <laughs> that, you know, maybe, like, maybe that's, at one point that's, that's the better way that it's, it's going to be or that's the way that enhances that emotional connection or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't feel it is. <laughs> but then again, I, I operate in a world of, of handmade. Yeah. Absolutely. And so does everybody listening to this podcast and they'll definitely appreciate that perspective. I know. Um, So just a little bit more about the business side of business. How have you marketed your knives? What's been the best sort of marketing avenue for you? Uh, Our focus has always been to get other people to be talking about us. Mm. Um, Very quickly, I decided that I wasn't going to pay for advertising. Um, I, I paid for it twice and both times I deeply regretted it. Mm. Um, now, I, I pay a dollar a day on Facebook just to kind of uh, do some advertising there, but I'm talking about print magazines yep. or, or anything else like that. Um, and, uh, and then it became, because, you know, you look at their, you look at their monetary equations and it's, you know, $2,000 or $4,000 and that's kind of being generous mm. to have uh, a small picture at the back of their magazine in the paid advertising area 
right? And if you go, okay, what's my time worth? Or what's the time worth of an intern I can bring in and pay $2,000 to write to as many magazines with our press release mm. as possible and get us featured in those magazines? Um, I would rather spend $2,000 worth of my time on writing up a better press release and getting a story out there than I would ever want in, in spending advertising dollars. And also because I'm not, I, I think probably at one point advertising becomes important when you, you're getting to a certain size. But in the beginning, it's, I, I feel it's such a poor use of your of money. Mm. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, we, we work really hard to get spoken about and we're constantly, every kind of two to three months, sending out something to, to our media contacts and trying to build our media contacts mm-hmm. constantly. Um, but, but, yeah, I'm not a big fan of kind of paid advertising. Yeah, so PR is definitely a big focus for you. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So in terms of marketing, PR is our, is our marketing. Yeah. And you do um, actual impl- in-person markets as well? We do about four to five a year. Okay. Um, so we do the meat stocks because uh, we make their trophies, and they're, uh, as part of that, uh, as part of that, we get a we get a table. Mm-hmm. They, you know, uh, and we do the same with with some other with some other markets where um, they pay us to make the trophies, and uh, and then we we also get a table. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then we also do big design markets and. Um, and Bowbird and so, uh, like a d- couple of different markets across Australia. Yeah. Uh, that's also good. That's really important. That's both a sales avenue and a marketing avenue mm-hmm. because uh, we understand that not everybody's going to buy a $600 knife on the spot or a $700 knife on the spot. Um, that for a lot of people, that's their first interaction with you as a company. And so they're, they're going to come back six months or 12 months later and that's when they're going to buy your product. Yeah. Do you find people tend to buy for themselves or as gifts? Oh, about 50-50. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so a lot of people are saying, oh, I'm buying this for a friend, mm. and they'll, they'll kind of find that stuff. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, as I said, like it, what we definitely, I don't know, but even in, in, in custom, we had probably 30 to 40% of customs were somebody buying a custom piece for a friend. Okay. Um, going, cool, I'm buying this experience for them. Yeah. One of them bought two. They were like, I want one for myself and I want one for myself. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. I was like, it's amazing. You know, and, and if you think about where our custom work starts, our custom work starts at $1,200 right. and goes up. And so, you know, um, ultimately on the scale of, 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 of expenses, it's actually not that high for something that's going to last for the rest of your lifetime. But compared to what we perceive as, as an expensive item for a knife. You know, often a global is an expensive knife for somebody that's a hundred dollar knife. Mm-hmm. Um, to go, oh, it's twelve times that much is the starting price. That, you know? Yep. Uh, that's really outside their thought process around how much a knife should cost. And that comes back to value and what what the yeah. value is of not only the item but the experience around the item. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say, like when you started out and you kind of, uh, did you start out by yourself from the beginning or did you kind yes, of? Yes, in the beginning it was, it was, I started off as a sole trader um, and, uh, and then I was at a market and I ran into an old friend of mine. He kind of popped in and he was like, hey, 
I'm now doing some woodwork. I was like, ah, oh, that's kind of cool because I need chopping boards to be made. I've designed some chopping boards. I just don't have time to make them. Mm-hmm. Make those for me. Uh, and he did. And then he was like, oh, I, I got hurt. He was working as a laborer and he was like, I got hurt at work. Can I just come in and make some knives with you? And I, yes. And that's how Rez came on board with the business. Mm-hmm. He just, um, yeah, he just came in and learned for free for a while. Um, and then after, you know, it's like you just, you hang around long enough until somebody pays you. <laughs> uh, yeah, he just, he started, he did that approach to, to, to work. Awesome. And how did the leather element get involved? Uh, I, again, with, with everything we do, it's because I want something to exist in the world. Mm. Um, and so I was looking at the quality of knife rolls that existed in both the Australian market and internationally. Um, and, and I found them very like, they were very function over form. Mm. Um, and yes, yeah, so there, was, there was no form over function, uh, which, is, which is nice. Everything was, was doing what it was supposed to do. But there was a lot of form where you're just like, okay, it's the, it's the utilicilt of, <laughs> of design. Where you're like, okay, I understand that you can do this. Should you do this is a different question. Um, and so we were like, okay, I've always loved leather. And, and so I sat down with, with a car. We actually had to work with a couple of different leather workers. Mm-hmm. It took us over a year of, of working with different people and unhappy with their results. Mm. Because people go, oh, no, I can do that. And then we'd, I'd sit down and go, okay, these are all the different things that I want you to put on there. I want there to be, apart from the stitch line around the outside on the outside of the bag, to be no stitch lines. All, the, all of that has to be hidden. Um, I don't want... I don't want these things to blemish. I want as few blemishes on the, on the leather as possible. Um, and a stitch is a blemish. Mm-hmm. And so that, it, it took us a while to find somebody who was actually capable of doing those different things. Um, uh, yeah, and they're, they're going well, but it's, it, it's you know, working, working with other hand, hand, handmade creatives can be difficult. And it's, you know, it's been a long, it's been a long learning curve developing those leather products. Mm. For sure. I just, I love that aesthetic though, that, that, that you have kind of the whole package there, not just the knives, but also the, the rolls. Uh, so, you know, people could also maybe collect knives from you and fill up the roll in the end as well, which would be a nice thing. Yeah, that's the Because, <laughs> I mean, as I said, I'm not much of a cook, but my husband is, and I've read enough books that I know that there are different knives for different things and you make a range of those different knives. So it's not like one knife is going to do everything. Yeah, I, like, yes, but also just buy a chef's knife. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, if people go, oh, like, I, what should I, I might just, if, you, if you're going to have one knife in your kitchen, it should be an eight-inch chef's knife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the most versatile, you know, it'll do about 90% of what the average person needs to do mm-hmm. in the kitchen. Um, and then the last 10% can, you know, can be done with other things, but you can also kind of get by without them. Yeah. You can, you can kind of get by without a bread knife. You know, if you're not a big bread eater or you're just buying sliced bread, you don't really need bread knife. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that would be one more I would add. And then a paring knife is, is kind of useful for off-board work. But, but when I'm cooking, I'm doing, I'm doing most of it with a chef's knife and I, I 
I won't change the knife that's in my hand while I'm cooking. But then again, some people love that process mm. of going, ah, this is my sashimi knife and this is for my, like, my small, you know, my small carrot peeling knife. Mm-hmm. This is my my strawberry hulling device. You know, so they've got a tool for everything. Um, but I think for the average person, they're like, I just, they just want one knife. Yep. <laughs> the most important one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So throughout your journey, um, what do, would you say, has there been a moment where you kind of, I call it the fist pump moment, like where something just amazing happened or you just really realised, yes, this is what I want to be doing. I'm on the right track. Yeah, there was, there was kind of two, uh, two big moments like that. One was I was at a market and I got approached by uh, an element of Heritage Skills Victoria mm. uh, and they were like, look, we give out grants um, with uh, uh, another organisation called ISS. Uh, I think, or ISSA, I've forgotten the name <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, uh, and they were like, we give out grants and we'd like you to apply for it. It's a $10,000 travel grant. Uh, and, and I went after that and, and I got it. And that was a really great moment in being able to go, cool, in, in being recognised for what you do. Mm. Uh, that's really, really special. Um, especially in the beginning and the beginning of any process you've definitely you've got that imposter syndrome Mm. you know for the first year really two years of running this i would have nightmares about somebody going ah i see you for the fraud that you are you know and and it's not that you are a fraud it's that is that you see the best of everybody else's work and the worst of your own (laughs) yes um and so naturally you go, I shouldn't be doing this or I'm, I'm not good enough to be doing these things. And so it's nice to have that kind of recognition that actually what you're doing is of a certain quality and a certain level. So that was one of them. And I got to travel through the States and work with a whole bunch of bladesmiths over there, um, which was really, really rewarding. And the other one was I got uh, Outstanding Design in the Delicious Produce Awards. And that was the first year that they that they ever did that award. Mm. So to get it in the first year that they ever ran it was really, really kind of, you know, I, I was so sure that I wasn't going to win that when I arrived, I stood right at the back of, of the room. Because <laughs> I was like, it, there's so many other incredibly talented makers in Australia, ceramicists, glass blowers, mm. knife makers, shopping board makers, all of these. And, and I was, I just didn't, I was standing at the back and then they called out my name and I was like, you know, <laughs> running up on stage while trying to make up a speech. Uh, <laughs> on, um, you know, like it, 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 to even go to that awards night with a speech under the belt would have felt like the most arrogant thing to do. Yeah. Would have felt so out of line because I was like, oh, of course, of course I'm just being invited to pad out an awards <laughs> group. Um, and yes, yeah, so there was those two moments where I was like, "This is this is fantastic. This is great. It's great to have that recognition. It's fantastic. That's important." Yeah, that is really exciting. Um, what did, would you say has been one or two of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome? Um, 
I think I really struggle with organisation. Mm. Uh, and now you can be a really disorganised sole trader and still do fine. As soon as you start employing other people, that goes out the window. Uh, you don't get to be disorganised with other people's super and pay, and I've never been disorganised in those areas. But but it really challenge it, it changes the way you have to run your business and, and it means organisation. And that's been a really steep and long learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's still ongoing is, is how important organisation is. Um, uh, and then as much as we've kind of done well with marketing, I hated it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I absolutely hated it. I, I really hated having to talk about my product mm-hmm. um, I think Australians by and large are actually quite humble people yeah. about what we do and it makes it difficult you, you know look you go to America and Americans like what I do is great <laughs> and I should be proud of it and it's and I tell you what you kind of should be and you kind of need to be mm. and it's being proud of what you do and being able to talk about it doesn't make you an arrogant human being you know, it just makes you somebody who's proud of what you do and somebody who's capable of talking about what you do. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's nothing more than that. Yeah, I love that and I totally agree. I think we definitely have an issue with that. <laughs> but I think, mm. I think a lot of makers do as well because of that whole imposter syndrome thing, um, you know, especially those of us who haven't perhaps had formal training in our, in our craft. Uh, you know, I, the only thing I ever did was a weekend silversmithing course and I've just learned everything else by trial and error much like yourself and i think for people in that situation you can definitely fall into that that imposter syndrome trap and therefore you don't feel comfortable talking about what you do because you don't feel like you're good enough and yeah it's kind of that vicious circle uh, but there is definitely a cultural element there too uh the whole tall poppy syndrome uh issue yeah uh, but- and we've, we've definitely run into exactly that where within communities that we operate in our success is is used against us mm. by people, and that's a, that's a tough thing. Then instead of going, hey, can't we all support each other? It's it's like, no, you don't you don't deserve. You have no right to have success. Mm. Is is it's a it, I think is a tough thing, and it, it it is. It's that tall puppy syndrome that exists in Australia, kind of quite a lot. Yeah, and it's quite disheartening, and something I try to challenge, um, you know, I think collaboration over competition and all that, you know, obviously, you know, if you stand next to someone who's making a similar thing to your making, then sure, you're competitors, but there's no reason why there's not enough customers for everybody, really. Um, And, you know, I'm personally working with a couple of people in my uh, education in niche at the moment we're uh, running a podcast together and technically we're competitors we all sell similar online products and things like that but we're also friends and we also have bigger ideas of what we want to do so we you know decide to get together and work together and I think that can be really beneficial to your individual businesses as well in the long run yeah it's that when we all succeed we all succeed yeah you know, like it's yeah that's how we've always kind of seen it um, that I, I have no interest in, in kind of talking down on, on anybody else mm. what they do. Um, 
Yeah. And I think the more of us that get out there and sort of talk about handmade and the value of it and, and the, the more people will hear about it and the more people might start to consider whether it's something they want to bring into their lives, uh, the sort mm. of whole handmade uh, movement that's sort of arisen in the last decade. Uh, so I think that's a really good thing as well. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, is there a piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice that you would give, perhaps give yourself if you were talking to past you who was just starting out or other makers who might be unsure of where they're going with their businesses? Yeah, I, I think is, is working out where your strengths and weaknesses are and, and then learning how to compensate for those. Uh, I'm not good at accounting and bookkeeping. It took me too long to outsource that to people who are good at those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you go, okay, but it costs money to pay for a bookkeeper. I'm like, well, it, it's going to cost you more if you don't have money. You know, if, <laughs> if, if that's not where your strength lies, it's really going to cost you a lot more to not outsource your weaknesses to other people. Like, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's really important. Um, and I wish I'd recognised that from the start. Mm. Uh, and then the other one is, you know, be kind. You're going to be kind to yourself. You, you're going to make a lot of errors. Um, and, and, and not every customer is going to be happy. Mm. And you can't help that. Um, you know, not everybody is nice in life, and that includes customers. Um, and, it, and it kind of sucks. And, you know, I've definitely had those days where you're just like, I don't want to get out of it. Yeah. I don't want to come in. Because either, you know, you've spent a whole week manufacturing something for it to not work or to break, or you've spent money on a tool that isn't going to do what you want it to do. And that was the last little bit of money that you had at that time. Um, just be kind to yourself because you're going to be making a lot of errors. That's so true. (laughs) And the customer thing is also true. And I I really wish I'd known that when I started out because the first time you get an unhappy customer, it's quite a shock Um, and it can be hard to deal with, Uh, especially... I don't, I don't know what's worth an unhappy customer when you've actually made a mistake or an unhappy customer where you haven't made a mistake and it, the customer's just misunderstood or something. Um, they're both equally horrible in their own particular ways. Yeah, I, th- I think it's people especially, through, like the, the internet breeds this kind of, this democracy of, of ideas mm. um, and this, or this view that everybody should have an opinion about everything. Yes. Um, so... It doesn't happen so much on Instagram. It happens more on Facebook. Mm. Uh, but we'll, there's just a lot of times on Facebook and they're not even customers at this point and it's just a weird one where people go, they, they, they just make a negative comment out of nowhere. And, and it's like somebody walking past your house and saying, your roses look like garbage. <laughs> and... and you're standing in your yard tending to your roses. And what do you do with that? Yeah. Like, what do you do with that interaction? What interaction, what has that done? You know, does that person want you to actually grow better roses? 
like there's there's nothing positive and and it happens on on kind of facebook yeah a lot where people are like i love your knives but your name's terrible <laughs> um, well i don't really know what to do with that statement yeah um or your knives are beautiful but but they cost too much and really when they're saying that is i don't value your hard work exactly um, and all of this is really hard, you know, and, and, and working out the best way. And if somebody learns a better way of dealing with it than I do, which is just to ignore it, um, <laughs> please write to me and say, hey, this is not a, I would love to be, I would love to be sassy. Yeah. About it. Oh my God, I would love to be sassy. Uh, if I could hire the, the marketing directors of Wendy's Burgers in the US for a really sassy Twitter profile, and just get them to run my media, I would. Because <laughs> uh, I would love that. That would make me happier than anything in the world. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, I tend to just delete, really. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what do you want me to do with that information? You're not actually my customer. You're just putting negativity in my world and bye-bye, I don't want to deal with it. Although I do like the sassy element too, but I'm not, I'm not very good at that myself. Um, <laughs> And it's even what, like you said, I love your roses analogy. I think that's really awesome because it's, it's just people will say stuff online that they just wouldn't, you know, it's like I guess maybe at a market store someone might come up and say something like that, but it's like somebody, yeah, coming to your house and even knocking on your door and they're like telling you some random thing. You're like, I really don't need to know. It's really not productive. It's not helping anything. So, yeah, moving on from those those people. Mm-hmm. But it's hard because it sticks in your brain. Our, our brains... <laughs> Our brains are problem-solving machines and, you know, people can tell you 10, a uh, 100 good things and you'll go, oh, yeah, whatever, and then one bad thing and your brain will just latch onto it because it sees it as a problem to be solved, even if yeah. not. So that's how we can magnify those, those negativities. Mm. It's, it can be difficult to get past it, absolutely. So finally talking, coming kind of full circle back to the beginning, you were talking about, you're getting to the point where you want to focus on the other elements of your life. What is that looking like to you right now? Uh, it's, it's good. I've, I've, it's a big part of what I'm doing is reclaiming that. Uh, and so uh, my wife and I moved into our house this year. And so I've just been doing a lot of gardening and a lot of planting. I'm semi-permaculture. I think real permaculture people would poo-poo on what I'm doing in my backyard. But... It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit too cultivated to be really called permaculture, but it's a little bit of permaculture in my backyard with a lot of edibles. Yeah. Um, for about a year, I barely cooked when I was so deep in my business. Mm. And so it's getting back into uh, cooking and barbecues being a big part of my life. And then most importantly, it's about spending time with the people that I care about. And so spending time with my wife uh, and my family and my friends. And so that's been a really, really important thing. Uh, Cause all of that just, you know, for about a year, uh, that's going to disappear when you're sitting up. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and then you're either going to hit, hit this, this point where you're like, okay, I'm going to shut down my business or you go, I'm going to, I've got to learn how to manage my time better. Mm. And it's not, you don't even manage, it's not even a management of time. Like you, when I go home and work at home, I'm not effectively working yeah. at home. I'm doing 20 minutes of work over four hours. 
instead of just going, okay, I'm going to go home and do 20 minutes of work, then I'm going to put away my computer, I'm going to put away my phone, I'm putting them onto airline mode so people can't even, you know, engage with me. And I'm just going to be, yeah. you know, I'm going to read a book, I'm going to play a board game or, or watch a, or binge on Netflix. <laughs> and just enjoy the rest of life. Exactly, right? There's more, there's more to life than <laughs> There really is. And it's so important to find that, that, that point in time. Um, I take a digital sabbatical twice a year where I get offline and stop working for a whole week. And it's like the best thing ever. It's, (laughs) it took a long time to get to that point, but yeah, it's, it's really good. And it just gives you that clarity. We forget, I think we forget how connected we are and how uh, reactive we are in a lot of ways, even in business, um, having a break kind of clears the clears the way and clears the mind and helps you sort of recalibrate what you want to do with your time. So yeah. very helpful. So looking forward, do you have a vision of where you want your business to go or is it more an organic development? Yeah, look, it's, it, we've got a clear vision getting from here to that vision is on a semi-organic process. Mm-hmm. Um, so mapping out how to get from year to year is still a bit too organic. Um, but the way, like our, our company uh, examples that, that we try and emulate are, are Aesop and Mud Ceramics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both those companies are incredibly impressive in, in terms of how they've been able to, uh, to develop handmade or, you know, or to develop a bespoke product um, and then internationalise them. Um, and so I don't want to lose focus on, on handmade. I don't, you know, if we just started getting all of this stuff manufactured in China, that, that would be a betrayal of, of what I'm trying to do. Mm. But I think I would love, I would love to get to the point of us having a, you know, our own stores, um, in a few different places. And then we've got some other products up our sleeves at the moment Mm -hmm. that I would, it's, it's about carving out the time to actually do those. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, you know, unfortunately those products are, are, are big and, and expensive to kind of get off the ground. Um, and I'm desperate to, I can't talk about them. <laughs> I I, yeah, I'm sorry I'm talking I'm about I'm so curious. Like, <laughs> loose, loose terminology. Um, but they've been, they've been kind of in the back of my mind for a long time. Like, oh, it would be cool to do this. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so now it's about kind of, right now it's about us solidifying where we are, our offering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've had a tremendous amount of growth in three and a half, four years. Uh, and now we just need to kind of focus on that and, and perfect our offering. Uh, and then that's not in the sense of perfect a knife. It's in the sense of how, how do we do this and how do we do, how do we perfect the processes by which we make the knife? Mm. Uh, um, you know, so things like stock take become really important when you hire people. Who would have thought? That, you know, <laughs> not having staff sit around idly because you don't have model or, or, or belts to grind knives is a dumb thing. <laughs> Um, I laugh because yeah. I, I understand. 
Yeah, it's, I know. Like it's uh, a lot of this stuff is like you do it, you do it once, and you're like, oh my god, I'm such an idiot. Yeah. And then you probably do it one time just to remind yourself how much of an idiot you are. <laughs> you do it more than that. I agree. <laughs> I think we've all got stories like that where we've run out of something at the absolute worst moment. Oh dear. Mm. Well, Aiden, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you, oh, thank you for so sharing much. your business journey and story with us. And um, what's the best place for people to learn more about you and your business online? So we've got our website, which is uh, cutthroatknives.com.au uh, or they can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And Instagram, it's Cutthroat Australia. Um, yeah, we've, we've got a little bit of a wait time. So we generally encourage people to get on that uh, as soon as, as possible. Um, it's just a short, a small deposit to get on that. Um, and if they're looking, you know, if you're looking to collaborate or if you're looking to do uh, something really different and interesting, we're always kind of open to having those chats as well. Um, it's, it's a big part of what we do is working with other interesting and creative people. And we've worked with apiarists. We've worked with taxidermists. Oh, wow. Florists. Sneaker makers, everything. And you guys ship internationally? We do. All of our shipping is free. Okay, awesome. I highly recommend everybody go check it out. There are, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm not even a cook or a chef, but your knives are beautiful and uh, I think they're worth little works of art in and of themselves. Thank you so much. And thanks again for taking the time to chat with me. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Big thanks to Aiden for coming on the show and sharing his story with us. I always find it fascinating that the more people I talk to, the more I hear the same elements of everybody's stories over and over again, which is really nice because it makes us realize that we're not alone in the struggles uh, that we're going through in this journey to build these handmade businesses. So I hope you get that feeling too from this episode and from the show in general. If you have enjoyed this episode, I would absolutely love it if you consider taking a moment or two to leave some feedback and a review, especially over on Apple Podcasts, uh, or come on over to the Facebook page and leave it there. It really helps people to find the show and to know it's worthwhile for them to invest their time listening to it. Thank you in advance if you are going to spend that moment or two to give that review and thank you to everybody in the past who's done that it means a lot to me and I absolutely love hearing your thoughts about the show and of course thank you for spending some time with me today I hope you found this valuable and I'll be back again next week with yet another episode of Create and Thrive podcast I'm Jess Van Den and goodbye for now